I would like very much tonight, very briefly, to talk about the work of the laity and the kind of life the priest had to lead here in Maryland. We thought this morning first of the church collapsing at the Reformation and having a mind of your own. Some of us may have to need that. And then we have the example of Sir Thomas More, the only man who really could stand up against a Tudor and win. So that today he's honored everywhere and Henry VIII is more and more being known for what he was. But the church collapsed and everybody ratted. Then we thought of the sudden new birth which sprung up almost 10 years after More died, all these wonderful saints and especially those who came back to Britain, uh, Campion and Southall, and they're all canonized now, Margaret Clitheroe, very ordinary people, most of them laymen and laywomen, who were willing to sacrifice everything for the faith. They never saw any result. They died with the church even weaker than when they were born. And yet the strange thing is that out of that world came these two extraordinary men, Lord Baltimore, George Calvert, or you call him Colbert, I forget what the drink's called, and Father Andrew White. Neither of them were sinless, but they were both extraordinary men, and you could say, therefore, that all the heroism that the ordinary Catholics showed in a time of terrible persecution really had its result in Maryland. The greatest thing in 300 years that the English Jesuits achieved was founding the church here. That's why I'm so thrilled always to come back here. Then when we saw them landing, we thought first of all about spreading the good news, that undoubtedly the missionaries didn't come largely just to be chaplains to a white colony. They came really to spread the gospel, which they did in all this area right up to almost to Georgetown. And we thought of that then and the sacrifice and the kind of life they had to lead living in their little tents and saying mass and eating the food of the Indians. Now the white men were equally valiant and therefore we come at the end today to the sort of wonderful men and women that they were and you can see that first of all in the question of Catholic education. It is really one of the most extraordinary stories in church history. They had no schools here. There was one brother Crouch from Oxford who very valiantly, I think at Leonardstown, I'm not quite sure, ran a little school for 20 years. It discontinued when there weren't enough children and then it restarted whenever he had another generation coming along. And that was all they had. They had no buildings. They had transport was non-existent. The transport didn't change very much from the 16th century right down to the coming of the car. And when you think of the distances they had to ride, they couldn't just dump their children at school by car as you do today. So the brother started with a little teeny school for all the children of the neighborhood. Then later they started another school, Bohemia Manor, and that school ran for about 40 years. And it was there that boys went where they tried to learn enough in order to qualify for high school education. It was a big struggle and some of the boys couldn't write at all when they reached the school. They had to start from the very beginning. And among the very distinguished people who went there, of course, was John Carroll, who was born in Upper Marlborough, and his father was that very distinguished Irishman who came over to, the, to Maryland in the early part of the century 
and became such a power in the country here. And so the John and Charles and a whole lot of them were big landowners and people of very deep faith. But then the miracle occurred, I find, when they all went off to be educated in Europe. From about uh, almost the beginning of the Maryland colony, certainly from 1640 uh, onwards, boys from Maryland and girls went to Europe in order to be educated, just as the Catholic children from Louisiana went to Europe. There were no schools over here. And what you think the parents suffered and the children when you think that John Carroll left home when he was 14, he left Bohemia Manor and went across to Europe, and he never saw his mother again for 26 years. And that was true of the future Bishop Archbishop Neal. It was true of Father Diggs and all the original uh, priests and others. It was true of all the great families here in Maryland that parents were willing to go to all that expense and all that loneliness so that their children would have the faith. It's reckoned that eight or nine new groups started out each year. There was a wonderful Father Hunter on this side who used to write to the Jesuits in London and tell them the names of the boys and what their grades were. And, and so they all made this immense journey. The danger of crossing the Atlantic alone was considerable, and the journey took at least two months. What they did with no television and with no entertainment, no newspapers, what they did in a little boat for two months is always beats me. I suppose they must have played bingo. <laughs> but at any rate, they, Mother Seton did it twice. Uh, people didn't seem to worry at all. How they managed with it, I don't know. But at any rate, across they went. Then they came to France, and there practically all of them went to the great Jesuit College of St. Omer's. In French, Saint-Omer, the English and the Americans have always called it St. Omer's. And if any of you were in D-Day, you will remember seeing it because it was very badly beaten up on the advance to Caen. It's just on the coast in between Calais and Boulogne, and the facade is still to be seen. Now, St. Omer's was built by Father Parsons, that extraordinary man who escaped after Campion was caught, and when he built these colleges, too, in Spain, etc., he built this English Catholic high school in France. And so, for a hundred and something years, every Englishman sent, if he could, every Catholic and every Marylander sent their sons there. So John Carroll, for one, was there studying the ordinary high school curriculum and acting and all that, and his mother and father writing to him, but he never saw his father again, I think. And his poor mother never saw him, and then the girls went to the various convents along the coast. It's very funny, when I come to America, everybody thinks I drink tea, but I don't, and never. And people say, oh, but the English do, no, they don't. In the Catholic Church in England, you can tell those priests whose origins were in the religious orders of Ireland from those who came from France. All those who had houses in France arrived in England drinking coffee. All those who came like the Holy Ghost Fathers and the Mary Noel missionaries who came from Ireland originally, they drank tea. So we have that little class distinction even at breakfast. <laughs> well, uh, John Carroll and the others, they all went out there and they spent all that time. Then when they got back, they went back to their parishes here, and you know them so well, like St. Thomas's Manor and all the other churches where they have these little churches, and there they had a most extraordinary career. 
One of the most remarkable is Father Greton. Sometimes he's called Greton, and sometimes he's called Greton. And he came in the early 18th century to Philadelphia. And he built that little church of St. Joseph's, which has all been done up now for the bicentennial. It's one of the oldest churches in the States, and it is really one of the most beautiful. Indeed, they've restored old Philadelphia round the Liberty Bell with great charm. And that was the little Catholic colony there. And this father, who was an extraordinary man, he came from Bristol, and he had a beautiful house on the cliffs outside Bristol, rather like the coast of Maine. Well, he came over here, and he built his first little church. And it really was so small, we're told that it measured 18 feet by 22. And it, it looked like a kitchen, and he had a chimney instead of a cross. He didn't want the Puritans of Philadelphia to know it was a Catholic church. So he lived there for I don't know how many years. Then he picked up this father farmer, the German, who was a wonderful man, and their parish extended to New York. So you can imagine the father farmer spent his whole time on a horse riding around, and so indeed did Father Gretton, who turns up all over the place. You keep on meeting him in Connecticut and New Jersey. He was the only priest in a huge area. Then they picked up another, an Englishman, Father Molyneux, who uh, was a wonderful man, but too stout to get on a horse, which was extremely awkward in the days when there were only horses. So Father Molyneux stayed at home in Philadelphia and did the books, which are perfectly kept, while Father Farmer rode around. And it was in that little church, and it was all a strange uh, community, one German and one Englishman, when in the Independence War they had a great mass for Lafayette. The story says that George Washington went there too. So when the French joined the, your side in the war, these two people, they had the whole of St. Joseph lit up with candles, this little teeny church, and uh, all the, the heads of state went in there, and they had a te deum, and, and the people of Philadelphia were astonished. So therefore, you, got, you get that sort of parish which is most moving to see it growing. Then you, of course, get another sort of parish. You get this extraordinary man, Father Mosley. Now, he worked entirely in this area. He was a Lancashireman. He's the man who's left the most vivid accounts of the kind of life they led. And he writes, writing to his sister in England in 1764, he says, Our journeys are very long and our rides constant and extensive. I often ride about 300 miles a week, and never a week but I ride 150 or 200 miles in heat, rain, cold, frost, snow. You must not imagine that our chapels lie as yours do. They are in great forests, some miles away from any house of hospitality. Swamps, runs, miry holes, lost in the night, this is yet and ever will be in this uh, country a uh, thing to attend to. Between three and four hundred miles was my last Christmas fare on one horse. We know that Father Mosley rode everywhere and that he had to carry with him all his food and his vestments and they had these little chalices that they could unscrew and put in their pockets and they even had chasubles in stripes so that they had all the colours on one little piece of linen of, so that if it was red or white or thing, that strip would count. So they rode around and, and many of them, of course, went by boat. We find that in the... From the early times of Father White, the Potomac was the quickest way of transport, 
and many of the priests had half their parishioners on the other side of the river. So they had to go across ever so often. We are told, therefore, the pastors and Inigos used to row his boat across St. Mary's River to reach his missions on the other side. The pastor of St. John's had to row his skiff across the Patuxent River to reach the homes of those of his flock who lived in Calvert country. The pastor of Leonardstown was accustomed to row his boat over Britain's Bay to reach his parishioners who lived across the other side of the stream. So there was a constant movement of boats, and as you know, in Thomas's Manor, the parishioners came to Mass by boat, like they do on my little islands, where the people on the off-islands tie their boats up outside my church. And my church isn't much bigger than Father Gretton's was. So therefore, we do get a most extraordinary time. Father, Father Mosley goes on that he, that he would be away from home for two or three weeks at a time. Because of the great distances, he couldn't do more than that. He had to teach the children at home, and he had to take communion to the sick, and he had to deal with all sorts of people who were outcast and who couldn't reach him. So therefore, it was a very heroic life, and the Catholics who sent all their children away and paid the fees for 20 or 26 years, in the case of John uh, Carroll, and they certainly contributed a great deal. So I'd like really to end this talk on that note. Among the great people who went to St. Omer's, of course, John Carroll was the greatest. And we'll think about him at the talk tomorrow. But if suffering makes a man holy, I don't think anyone suffered more than John Carroll, except perhaps Mother Seton. Because John Carroll had a terrible shock. He went over and he became a Jesuit at St. Omer's, and then he was ordained, and then he got leave to travel around Europe with Lord Sturton, a boy in the school. And for two years, he rode around Europe. He was a very interesting diary, he wrote, because he was the last American to see Europe before America became independent. And he went around France, which he loved, and Germany and Italy, and he came to Rome, just at the time when there was all this pressure on the Pope to suppress the Jesuits. There was a tremendous hostility to the Jesuits here in Maryland from the Puritans. There were all sorts of stories that... Uh, we, we were trying to set up a republic of our own with, with slaves and Irishmen. There were all sorts of stories, all sorts of yarns about nuns and Marat monk and walled-up convents and all the typical ch uh, stuff that was said also when Kennedy was going to be president. So therefore there was great hatred here. There was the same anti-religious feeling and hatred all over Europe. And when John Carroll got to Rome, he couldn't call on his friends, the Jesuits, there because... They might have done him harm if he was known to be a Jesuit. He found in Rome all the Bourbons and the others making pressure on the wretched Pope to suppress the society. And indeed he found a blasphemous attack on the society being destroyed in the streets of Rome, drawn up like a mass of the Sacred Heart. He sent a copy to his friends at St. Omer's. Then he went back to St. Omer's and that college was suppressed by the French king and all the boys had to move to Bruges. The school shifted, and John Carroll taught there. But then at last the final blow came when the Pope did suppress the Jesuits. Suddenly the order was told on a certain day, they kept it all secret, the Jesuits had to stop at once, that they had to leave all their money and all their silver and everything, and they had to go and they were in prison for about three or four weeks, 
and then they had to go and ask a diocese to have them, and if they wanted to join another order, they had to make another noviceship. Such was the prejudice against the Jesuits. John Carroll was absolutely furious. It hurt him terribly. He never got over the scandals he saw in Rome. When he was here in Maryland, he'd always thought of Rome as a holy city, and when he got there, it really was in a most terrible state. So poor John Carroll, suddenly he was no longer a Jesuit. Well, he went and stayed with, with the Arundels of Warder, who he loved so much, for a year or two, and then on the very last boat that went from England to Baltimore before the Independence War, John Carroll came home to meet his dear mother, and they went and uh, lived just near uh, Washington. I forget what the thing that uh, creek is called, uh, but you still see her, his mother's tomb in the churchyard, and the little house where he lived is now destroyed. But he got back in all and saw his mother again. And then he had this awful thing that the Jesuits, who were the only priests in Maryland, had suddenly been suppressed. They had to write a, a terrible thing saying they accepted the Pope's word and that the society was finished and they were no longer Jesuits, and they all had to sign it. Well, now, in London or in Paris or in Italy, it was not so painful in a way because uh, there were other priests or a bishop to whom they went to sign this document. But in Maryland, they were only themselves. And you can see the list. Father Hughes gives a picture of it, of all the 21 Jesuits from Philadelphia and all over Maryland with all their signatures saying that they were out of the order. And then they had nowhere to go, so they all went home to their little parishes, to here, to um, a place like St. Mary's, and there they sat there, but they no longer had the companionship of each other, and they were no longer able to meet as a religious community. And they were in complete depression. That dear Father Mosley, who wrote saying he was the happiest man in the world, wrote to his sister saying, now that my order's been suppressed, every job is disgusting. To be let down by your own church and by your own bishops is terrible, and I'd like to retire now. They were all absolutely broken-hearted. And it was at that moment that poor John Carroll, who'd just come back from Europe, that he rallied them round and collected them all together. And so really, he was a giant of a man. So we end there, and then tomorrow we'll think of John Carroll, what he achieved. That will be in our first meditation. And then our second meditation will be about Mother Seton, and she again from this very same world. In fact, it was John Carroll who made Mother Seton and brought her into Maryland. So we have benediction now, and then we must keep silence and pray to God for our country. When the tapes were finished and the men had gone, I played them back for myself to see whether or not I was satisfied. And I'm rather pleased now to have a chance on this tape to add one or two small points which I didn't mention when the retreat was in progress. For example, when I describe the suppression of the Jesuits, people ask, well, why were they suppressed? That's what the men asked me in a question period last night. And obviously, most Jesuits would admit that in an order of 26,000 people spread all over the world in various foreign missions, clearly there would be mistakes. 
There were some serious mistakes, especially in the Caribbean, when a French Jesuit lost a great deal of money by investing in a shipping company that went broke. So there were scandals, and also maybe the Jesuits drew the envy of other people because they were so successful as in the missions of Paraguay. Therefore, um, you have to accept there's right on both sides. But I don't think that anyone today would uh, deny that the suppression of this great order that had done so much with so much pain for the papacy that the suppression was entirely just. Yet I don't think many Jesuits would want to blame the Pope. There was a great movement of irreligion in the 18th century, thanks to the French encyclopedists, thanks to Freemasonry, and therefore people were turning against the traditional church. You have great pressure in France and Spain from the Bourbons, and rather like Pontius Pilate at the Passion of Our Blessed Lord, Pilate may have done all that he could. I've just read a life of him which makes out really that he was the attorney for the defense when our Lord was taken to Calvary. And so the the Pope, who had just been elected, and he was elected largely through the influence of the Bourbon countries, this poor Pope, Ganganelli, may have been able to do nothing else. But there's no doubt that the suppression of the Jesuits was a scandal, and I only mention it here because John Carroll was deeply involved. He was a most honorable man. We'll consider more about his history later, Uh, but John Carroll never recovered from what he saw done to his colleagues in Rome and in Bruges. When he got back to Maryland, he then quite openly stated that the real and the most strong motive why he left Europe was because he wanted to get away from all the most uh, shocking things he saw. I have here a letter from him where he says, he wrote it in 1782, that one of my strongest inducements to leave Europe was to be removed not only out of sight, but even out of hearing of those scenes of iniquity, duplicity and depredation of which I have seen and heard too much. And then he goes on to say, sadly, that I don't like to be separated from my friends, but he writes, at least it has afforded me this consolation that I have not been mortified with the recital of all those rapes with the defamation and insults to which those I love best have been exposed. It's worth mentioning this point because when when you study the whole life of Carroll, and he had such a tremendous success later, you do notice that he never really trusted the Roman system. He didn't distrust it in the sense he was a devout Catholic and a bishop or archbishop, but he never forgot the corruption which existed and the greed in those 20 or 30 years before the French Revolution and Napoleon. He comes back to it again and again where he saw all his friends so hurt. And when some of the people in Britain wrote to him across the Atlantic saying that the Jesuits would be restored, he said that the society will never be restored because any effort will be stopped by the united voice of all those plunderers who have enriched themselves with the lands, the furniture of the college, 
the plate and treasury of our churches and sacristies. I stress that because a strong man, he spoke the truth. And that's why later he took such a firm line when it came to the different emigrants coming to America. He was determined not to be governed by Europe too much when he came to the church. It should be noted that John Carroll himself actually went to prison. When the suppression of the Jesuits was announced, the different houses were treated differently according to the civil organization in which they lived. The Jesuits in Liège were governed by the Prince Bishop of Liège, who, in a funny, curious way, was very tolerant. But Bruges was under the Austrians, and Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria, was miles away. She was a devout woman. But the local people in the Netherlands, they wanted money at all costs. So they not only raided the school where John Carroll taught, but they led the Jesuits away in prison. They were not even allowed to go to their rooms to find or to collect their toothbrushes. No, they were packed up, and John Carroll rode in the first car or carriage with Austrian soldiers guarding him, and they were all taken away and locked up for several days. Then some of them were released, but one or two were kept in jail or whatever it was quite a long time. And why? Because the Austrian authorities knew that the parents in Britain and Maryland had just paid the fees to the college, and they wanted to find the money and make away with it. Indeed, they failed because many of the rumors about Jesuits being very rich, most of those rumors have proved to be ex extremely exaggerated and even faulty. So after that, then John Carroll went back to Maryland, and then I'd just like to touch, because it's sad to leave out a very moving thing, the friendship between three ex-Jesuits. One was Father Thorpe, an Englishman who lived in Rome. One was Father Plowden, a very distinguished English family who lived at Lulworth, and John Carroll on the other side of the Atlantic. These three had been friends at St. Omer's. Indeed, I think Father Thorpe had taught John Carroll and Plowden. I'm not quite sure of that. They remained friends as Jesuits, and when John Carroll traveled around Europe just before the Independence War, and when the beginning of the opposition to the Jesuits was starting, to which I have referred previously, he met Father Plowden in Italy, and he met Father Thorpe. And so when the great college of St. Omer's and Bruges broke up, and John came back here and started Georgetown, Father Plowden and others, very shortly afterwards, moved the English half of the college to Stonyhurst. These three great men, very witty and very honest and great lovers of the Jesuits, they corresponded over many years. Father Thorpe, who was in Rome and of some influence, though now not a Jesuit, he was the one, I think, who let John Carroll know that he would one day be made a bishop. He warned him of that, and Carroll would write to Thorpe to find out what was happening and whether to be consecrated in Toronto um, or in Dublin or in Rome. Plowden and Carroll carried on a lively correspondence right through the Independence War. Carroll was complaining of the brutal British Navy firing along the coast of America, and Plowden was even more angry with Carroll for having come in with a lot of French frogs. So these two dear friends had a battle across the Atlantic firing broadshots at each other, uh, but in a very uh, good-tempered way. 
Then they started another great trouble about Georgetown, because poor Carroll had built his school. He could only pay about 60 pounds a year for teachers, and he tried to persuade the ex-Jesuits from his old school of St. Omer's to come over and run Georgetown. Indeed, he offered Father Plowden, who was a considerable scholar, that would he come over and take charge of the studies. Actually, Plowden was not willing to do that, but he said he'd write a Latin grammar for the use of the Georgetown boys, which I think he never did. Then poor, poor um, Carroll had to try and find other teachers, and uh, Father Plowden, on the other side of the Atlantic, worked with him in that. Then an extraordinary blasphemous book came out, A Life of the Pope Who Had Suppressed the Jesuits, and it said that Father Thorpe wrote it and that Plowden had it published, and he sent copies about it caused quite a stir. No one's really got down to the truth of it. It's a, a, a very cynical book in a way, very amusing. I put that in because I feel sad that we shouldn't remember that this great friendship existed even through the independence war and afterwards. Thorpe died in 1794, I'm guessing it, and uh, Plowden and Carroll continued to correspond, oh, for 20 years. Indeed, the very last letter that Carroll wrote, I think before he died, was to Plowden saying how thrilled he was to hear that the Jesuit order had been restored. That was in about 1814, 1815. Plowden had sent an account of the ceremony to uh, Carroll, who was an old, old man then, and Carroll wrote back saying that he'd always thought that great day would come. But then he added that he could never forget the brutality and the wickedness of the uh, Roman Church at the time of the suppression. He never got rid of that sense of injustice, and being such a strong and noble man himself, I feel it's only fair that this should be said when we are talking about the history of Maryland.